in the work that I've been doing, I've been reading papers from way back in the 60s and 70s. And it's shocked me every time I've read something that says, watch out, guys, this resistance is coming. It's already here. So it's now got to the point where we can't ignore it any longer. We can't just pretend it's not happening. And if you project where it will end up in the future, it's a really scary thought. Currently, 700,000 people die every year from resistant-related infections. And by 2050, it's projected that that will be 10 million people, which is a staggering amount. There's a risk that we go too far with this message and we turn these into some sort of villain where they've actually saved millions of lives. We want to put a message forward to say that they're a precious resource and we want to conserve them so that we've got them for when we really need them. The past decade has seen antibiotic resistance swell to become an issue of such epic proportions It's been dubbed a global concern on par with climate change. The antibiotic has been a fundamental in infection control for the better half of the past century. But as the resistance movement has grown, they've become an increasingly bitter pill to swallow. Today, we'll be looking at what comes next and what's being done to make sure we don't lose one of the most vital drugs in modern medicine forever. This is Think Health, I'm Jake Morecambe. The antibiotic has shaped the modern health landscape. With different types numbering in the hundreds, they've been used to combat a vast range of bacterial infections and have saved millions of lives. And although they are still readily administered today, it's been more than 30 years since a new type of antibiotic has been developed. Until about the 1980s, we were developing new antibiotics, new classes of antibiotics every few years, and that was the golden age of antibiotics. So there was always new ones coming through the stream. So if antibiotic resistance happened, it didn't matter. We found new ones, we just kept going. This is Laura McCaughey, a postdoc fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney. Laura says that the last antibiotic that fights against gram-negative bacteria, meaning the tiny bacteria in your body, was developed back in 1987. Very long time ago. That was the year I was born. And after crafting all the easy ones, Laura says our pipeline quickly dried up. Why did we stop making new sorts of antibiotics? They're just really difficult to make. The common ones that we use were identified in soil microbes, so bacteria, yeast. And we've essentially just stolen them from the bacteria, purified them in a lab, and we use them against the bacteria. And also... Why would we look for new ones when the ones we have work so well? 
It's this moment that marks the beginning of what we now know as the modern antibiotic resistance movement. And yes, even though Laura noted people were aware of the potential for resistance as soon as we discovered the antibiotic, when we stopped making new types, or when we couldn't, resistance was inevitable. As health professionals and as members of the public, if we feel like something is going to work for us, we want to prescribe it or we want to try it. You know, if we're unwell, we want something to try and help us be well again. And with antibiotics, we've associated that with being well. This is Amanda McCulloch from the Bond University Research Centre for Evidence-Based Practice. Amanda says when we discovered antibiotics, we used them left, right and centre. I can certainly remember as a child being given the yellow amoxicillin. Yellow amoxicillin is a type of antibiotic used, not exclusively, in treating something like the common cold. And whether I needed that or not is probably unlikely, but that's what I had back in that time and that's what was done. The uses of the antibiotic were extremely vast and went beyond prescriptions at the general practice to places like the hospital, to the surgical theatre. When people come to hospital to have an operation done, one of the feared complications of any operation is infection. Kirsty Busing from the Doherty Institute notes here that antibiotics in the hospital environment have been used more so as a means to prevent infection. We know that giving an antibiotic immediately before the operation starts can help reduce the likelihood that you will get an infection. And that's because if you're undergoing a surgical procedure such as that, you are potentially more prone to developing an infection? Well, you're opening up the body cavity. Bacteria are all around us. They float in the air, they're on the ground, they're everywhere. So although surgical procedures are done under sterile conditions, I don't think it's possible to be 100% sterile. And then any surgery such as gut surgery where you're opening up the gut, which is billions and billions and billions of bacteria in there, then the chances of that bacteria traversing to the bloodstream or elsewhere is massive. And also our skin is covered in bacteria. So every time you open up your skin, then there's a chance of that bacteria, which is completely harmless normally to us. But if it gets into the bloodstream, it can be really, really dangerous. But as the rates of prescription and use have grown and grown, and with fewer antibiotics being developed, this overuse has snowballed into resistance. So I feel like with a lot of healthcare things, for example, with smoking, whereas knowledge has emerged over time that smoking is so harmful for you, the behaviour has changed. And it's probably similar with antibiotics where the knowledge is just growing and growing and growing and there's kind of a groundswell. Antibiotic resistance can form in a number of ways. But ultimately has to do with the way the bacteria changes its response to the antibiotic, sometimes neutralising it, sometimes changing its structure so it has no effect. And then from here what happens is those resistant bacteria continue to multiply. What we also know is that overuse and misuse have amplified the problem. You know, an example might be a person with a cold, a common cold. They're caused by viruses and antibiotics and not really going to help there. Things like coughs, colds, flus are self-limiting. They go away, but they take time. For things like coughs, I think you reduce the duration of your cough by something like 12 hours by taking an antibiotic. So it's basically not worth it because you increase your risk of diarrhoea and vomiting. Much like lessons we've learnt from smoking, Kirsty Busing from the Doherty Institute says 
when it comes to prescribing antibiotics pre-surgery. Evidence that we have at the moment is that that really only matters probably at the time of the operation. And once the operation is over, there's really no benefit for most patients being given prolonged preventative antibiotics just in case. But these potentially unnecessary prescriptions are still pretty commonplace. The problem with overprescription and misuse is that they aren't easy problems to solve, and they're not all of a sudden fixed by abstaining from antibiotics. In the general practice, however, GPs can instead offer a delayed prescription, which, according to Amanda McCulloch, involves... If you were feeling unwell today and you thought, right, I better go to my GP and you go in and they ask about your symptoms and they say, look, Jake, you you sound pretty sick, but these things normally clear up in three to four days. So how about if I give you the prescription, you don't take the antibiotic yet. And if you're still unwell in three to four days, then you go and fill it in and get the prescription and go from there. Changing the way we prescribe in the hospital environment, however, isn't so clear-cut, where in more serious cases, practitioners might prescribe antibiotics as a first port of call. Where a patient looks desperately unwell and we're not sure what's going on. Kirsty Busing again. And we think maybe it could be an infection. And in that scenario, it's very common that people will be given some antibiotics, often some very broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, you know, until we get some test results back and we can figure out what's really going on. And, and that's actually probably quite appropriate to do that. It's, it's very reasonable to do that. But the problem can arise if those antibiotics aren't reviewed and then stopped if it becomes clear from the test results that there's not an infection there and we've got an alternative diagnosis and sometimes a problem can be that the antibiotics once started don't get readily reviewed and the patient unfortunately gets administered antibiotics for days and days and days before somebody questions it and says why are we giving these drugs. This creates some big concerns around what happens when antibiotics are absolutely necessary. Laura McCorhey. So things like caesarean sections, how many women across the world have a caesarean section every year? It's a massive amount. Abdominal surgery, hip replacements, any sort of surgery. But if surgery does lead to infection and the antibiotics don't work... The chances of dying from an infection that's antibiotic resistant is much higher if we don't have antibiotics. Fortunately, here in Australia, to some degree, we're leading the way when it comes to monitoring what antibiotics are used, how they're being prescribed, and also where they're being prescribed. This is all being done through a practice known as antimicrobial stewardship. Kirsty Busing is also the deputy director for the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship and says it's a term that's used to describe all of the activities that you might undertake to try to guide the way that antimicrobial medicines are being used. Antibiotics are a form of antimicrobial. The resistance movement is often referred to at times as antimicrobial resistance, which also includes forming resistances to things like antifungal creams, hand sanitizers, and in this stewardship, antibiotics make up a massive part of this to ensure that we get the optimal benefits and minimise the harms that might be coming about from overuse or misuse of those um, medications. 
Australia was one of the first countries in the world to make reporting of antimicrobials in hospitals mandatory, where back in 2013, antimicrobial stewardship was included as part of a hospital's accreditation standards, meaning for a hospital to pass the test in terms of practice, stewardship is an absolute must. There are two ways data is collected under antimicrobial stewardship. One is that hospitals will send their antibiotic data to a central group known as the National Antimicrobial Utilization Surveillance Program which is where trends of use are tracked over time, and they also are compared to other national averages. And the second literally involves on-foot data collection in hospital. We'll go from bed to bed and look at the medication charts and write down information or collect information about any antibiotic prescriptions, and we find out what drug is being used at what dose and what indication it's being used for. So is it being used for pneumonia or for a urine infection or for prevention after an operation or, or, or something? Stewardship in the general practice, however, is not mandatory. In the community setting, it's not a requirement. Uh, I think many of us would imagine that it would be a good thing if it, if it was required. But the challenge is who would provide it? Whose job would it be? Where are the resources to try to get out to each and every clinic out there? It's an enormous job. And what would a good program look like in general practice? I think we're still trying to imagine what might work best. I think it's a big area where we're trying to focus some attention. But there is a place we can start, and that's changing behaviour. Is it difficult to change behaviour? Absolutely. It's really difficult. Uh, it's really, really difficult. But that means we have to look at the long term. We have to sort of be ready to see early adopters who, who will grab hold of the change early and embrace it and then try to bring, I guess you call them the laggards, the people who are less inclined to embrace change. You're going to have to bring them along more slowly. Um, but be patient. As an antimicrobial steward, I've got to learn, we've got to learn to be patient and to try and understand that people are, are going to adopt this change at a different pace, but we don't give up um, and we, we sort of just keep at it gradually grinding away and we do see changes over time and that's very gratifying when it does happen. But informing and educating clinicians is only one side of the story. The other is you and me, the patient. So I think possibly people do know the term a little bit more, but they don't always know exactly what causes it. The public consciousness of antibiotic resistance in Australia is relatively high. But what Amanda McCulloch from Bonn University found in her research, where she was reviewing the public's knowledge and beliefs about this resistance, was that an awareness didn't necessarily indicate an understanding. People believed that antibiotic resistance was about your body changing rather than the bacteria actually evolving. Meaning there was a misconception that the body becomes resistant to antibiotics rather than the bacteria. And Amanda says that this belief is a pretty common trope across the globe. So people say to me, well, I've never had antibiotics in my life, so I'll be fine. Laura McCaughey from UTS. Well, that's not true because you could never have had an antibiotic, but you can still get infected with a bacteria that is resistant to the antibiotics. 
the transmission of resistance bacteria is not particularly common, but Kirsty Busing says is possible and occurs most often in the hospital environment through the typical means of bacterial transmission. It can spread by a number of ways depending on what the particular bacteria are that we're talking about. So there are some bacteria that live on our skin and that may be transmitted by direct contact. And there are other bacteria that live in our gut and are possibly more readily spread by food and water, for example. And in a hospital environment, very rarely but possible via the environment in a patient's hospital room, for example, um, the bed, the curtains, um, other things that might be contacted um, could potentially have become contaminated. Although potential exposure to resistant bacteria, particularly in the hospital, may be out of a patient's control, there are some decisions the patient can make when it comes to their relationship with antibiotics. When you go to your GP, you can ask questions, things like, do I really need this test, treatment or procedure? What are the risks? Are there simpler, safer options? What happens if I don't do anything? And what are the costs? In asking those five questions, you can start to make an informed decision about which treatments to take or not. To hold off in grabbing a prescription for your fluy cough makes sense. But where in some cases we are turning away from the antibiotic, we need to be careful of something. And that's to make sure we don't demonise the antibiotic. Recognising that resistance is a possibility doesn't mean we shouldn't be using antibiotics when we really need them, or that we shouldn't be developing alternatives. Laura McCaughey from UTS is doing this exactly, and developing a new type of antibiotic. And not a broad-spectrum antibiotic that would have historically been prescribed for something like the common cold, but a drug with a very particular purpose. So the research that I am doing is looking at antibiotics that kill a specific type of bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. All right, so that name was Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is just a type of gram-negative bacteria. And that's mainly a problem for people with cystic fibrosis or compromised immune systems or burn victims. So Laura is working with bacteriosins, which are just proteins developed by this pseudomonas bacteria. And what she's doing is she's harnessing the power of these proteins and putting them into an antibiotic to kill off the bad bacteria. But in addition to that, this bacteriosin, this protein, has different mechanisms, meaning that they can actually kill bacteria that are resistant So the outside of a bacteria, so imagine our skin, it's a barrier that stops um, unwanted things going in and out of the bacteria. And dotted across the outer surface is lots of different receptors or pores that allow things in or allow things to go out of the cell. And a lot of these are very specific, so they'll only let one certain thing in. And these bacteriocins have sort of, it's like a Trojan horse, they've hijacked these receptors to be taken into the cell when these receptors are normally only used for the nutrients. So it's a really clever way that these protein antibiotics have managed to get into the cells. The thing with these specialised antibiotics is that they are incredibly difficult to make and also very expensive, and ultimately target only one particular infection. Laura argues, though, that it's the development of rapid diagnostic toolkits which is where a test would take place using a sample and identifying what the infection was and what the best suited drug would be to target the infection. 
these toolkits are one place in which we could focus our energies. Again, they are expensive and resource prohibitive, but innovations in this space, Laura says, are on the horizon. The golden idea would be a ten-minute GP appointment that you go in, you get tested, or even if we could go in and get tested, and then the next day come back and get your results, and if you needed get antibiotics or. If pharmacists were able to do these tests and then give out antibiotics, there's a lot of ideas in the mix as to how going forward this could all work. But I think one of the main points now is just safeguarding what we have, using antibiotics responsibly um, and trying to slow the rates of resistance. Although the scale of antibiotic resistance is a potentially disastrous global health concern, this doesn't mean we're not equipped to deal with it. Because if anything, we've made these same mistakes before. I think the way to move forward is to assume that resistance will happen. Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, said in his Nobel Prize speech that resistance was already occurring, and if we didn't safeguard against it, then it would become a massive problem. We know that we ignored antibiotic resistance and it's now become a massive issue, so we need to not do that going forward with the knowledge of don't mess up like we did before. In the resistance movement, changing prescriptions and use of antibiotics in clinical practice is only one side of the story, where actually 80% of the antibiotics used worldwide are used in the farming industry. And the resistance that develops in the animals then passes through the food system, through the environment, and ends up in the human population. That's later this season on Think Health. Think Health is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney, 2SER Radio, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health on your favourite podcast app or iTunes. I'm Jake Morecambe.